Hey, thanks so much. You guys can grab a seat. Hey, before we get started, I just wanted to tell you how great you are, actually. Um, a couple of things happened today that are really, really cool. Number one is this weekend marks the 21st birthday for Stone Creek Church. Come on. Isn't that awesome? Some of you guys have been here that whole time. And some of you guys feel like it. So, uh, but man, God's done some incredible work over the last 21 years. And what an honor to be a part of that. Also, I want to talk a little bit about um, something we launched into last year about around this time called Beyond. Let me hear everybody say Beyond. Beyond. Like, and we just had this belief that God wanted to do something beyond us, right? He wanted us to go beyond church to understand, be able to just uh, enlarge the mission that he'd given us. He wanted us to go beyond now and to look into the future. He wanted us to go beyond here and launching campuses and then beyond us as we partnered with people to just empower them to do ministry. And so we launched into this generosity initiative right about the time that this thing called the coronavirus hit. Amazing. Now we had already kind of loaded up to launch our second campus in Sandy Springs. We'd already bought equipment. We had already hired staff. And so so while we did wait a little while, on October the 4th, we launched our second campus, Elevate City in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And today they had to change facilities, not because they were forced to, but because they had run out of room for growth. And so today they are meeting down in the Marriott, down in uh, Sandy Springs for the first time. And so that's just because of your faithfulness, your generosity, your giving, your belief in what God wanted to do, knowing that the mission doesn't stop just because somebody had to wear a mask. Amen? Right, we got stuff to do, so thank you. Um, you know, that the Super Bowl is a time when we talk about the greatest. We talk about the goat. We talk about the greatest of all time because that's what goat means. It means the greatest of all time. And you can't talk about the GOAT when it, as it comes to football without talking about Tom Brady. Come on, somebody. Like some, yeah, that was a, I knew that wasn't going to get a lot of applause because some of you hate Tom Brady. You know why? Because he's better than you are. <laughs> he's got more money than you do. Let me, uh, let me just read why Tom Brady actually is the greatest, the GOAT of all time when it comes to football. Tom Brady has won six Super Bowls. He's been to 14 Pro Bowls. He's won six Super Bowl MVPs. He's won three NFL MVPs. He's the second in all-time passing yards and the first in passing touchdowns. He is second in fourth quarter comebacks. He has beaten every NFL team and is undefeated against six NFL teams. In his career, he's played in more conference championship games than 26 NFL teams have played. And there's only 32 teams in the NFL, for those of you who don't know. He's been to one-fifth of the Super Bowls in history. He's been to 10. This is his 10th Super Bowl start. No other quarterback has more than five, and that's pretty amazing. He has more playoff starts than Peyton Manning and Johnny Unitas combined. Anybody in here even know who Johnny Unitas is? Yeah, come on. Um, the Texans, the Houston Texans, as an organization, have played, have only played five more games than Tom Brady. So they played five more games than Tom Brady has, but they have 95 fewer wins than Tom Brady does as an organization. And all this after he was picked in the last round. It had one of the worst 40 yard dashes in NFL combine history. I think Tom Brady is the GOAT. He is, he is the greatest, right? 
And Jesus taught us something about the greatest. Jesus had some words to say when asked about what was the greatest. Jesus summed it all up in this one small word, love. That's what Jesus said was the greatest. Jesus says the greatest commandment is love. Now, now, now what I want to talk about today is why, just why is love the greatest? Because on the surface, it doesn't feel so great. Some of you are like, wait, Valentine's Day is next weekend, Stephen. We got to get your dates right. Because it feels like this anemic, feeble emotion. But what if, man, what if love was this earthquake that caused a tsunami of purpose and power in our lives? Like when we think of love, we think of things like, I love my favorite food. So for instance, for the Super Bowl, some of you have your favorite food. For most people, it's buffalo chicken dip. Just say it. You know, come on. And I just want you to think about that version of love. I love my favorite food or I love this Netflix show. That type of love has no power to walk you down that long hospital corridor when a loved one is dying. That type of love has no courage to help us to confront people when we see them standing on the edge of a cliff ready to jump off and to some destructive behavior. Man, that love, that type of love has no tenacity to keep going to pick up the pieces of my marriage when it's falling apart, does it? What we want to talk about today is this powerful force that God has unleashed in the universe that is the operating principle. See, love, love should be the language of the church, but love should also be the language of our lives. Hey, grab your Bibles. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13. I'm, I'm just going to start out with that very last verse in verse 12 and then just kind of teach through this passage, kind of the quintessential passage on love. For some of you, maybe it was read at your wedding or maybe um, you heard it read at a wedding or something. I'll point out how some of that was actually wrong, but um, we'll wait for that. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 31 says this, it says, and, and, and Paul, just to set up the context, Paul has been combating some things in this church in Corinth. They were very competitive. Does that sound familiar? They always want to be number one. They always wanted to be who was better. This guy would say, hey, I know more than you do. This guy would say, I've had more experience than you do. This guy would say, I've got more money than you do. This guy would say, I've sacrificed more than you do. And Paul's like, hold, hold on just a minute. You're missing something here. And in verse 31, Paul says this. Paul says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. I will show you a still more excellent way. I love the way the uh, NLT says it. It says, and I will show you, I will show you a way of life that is best of all. Best of all, like, like nothing beats it. When he talks about way of life, he's just talking about this path that we walk, this journey that we're, we are on that's called life. And the word that he uses for excellent or for best is the word we get our word hyperbole from. It, it means just this extravagant exaggeration and so what Paul is about to do is to launch into this description of what love looks like that, that he, even, him, even he himself can't figure out enough words to say, to really describe it, to define it, to capture the essence of this type of love. And listen, if we can do that in our lives, it will mark us. Like it will mark you as, some, as somebody different. It will mark you with purpose. It will mark you with this, this overwhelming sense of, of uh, tenacity and movement in life. It will give you some certainty and confidence to live even in uncertain times is what Paul's saying. Like this is the best way to live. Now there's a lot of ways that we can live. There's a lot of ways that we live. I would just ask you, ask yourself right now, am I living the best way possible? 
Like, is this the best that I can do? Is this all that there is? Because see, what love does is love just helps you to keep moving even in times of chaos, even in times when you may seem like you're just a little bit confused. And so Paul wants to kind of unpack that in, the, in verses 1 through 13. And it just gives us this clear understanding of what, of what love should look like. He goes on in verse 1. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, it's a lot of faith, but have not love, I, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So what Paul is saying is that anything, anything that we do that's practiced, without love produces nothing of lasting value. Like think about that, of all that we do in life, anything that we do that's practiced without love produces nothing of lasting value. Like he starts out when he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but don't have love, I'm just a noisy gong. So what he's saying is there were some people there and sometimes you meet people that do this, man, they, they just seem to have this sense of like, I'm closer to God than you are. Like a lot of people think that's true of me because I have, I'm a pastor. Right. And I am closer to God than you are because I have the red phone. I can always pick up and call. Right. That's what you get when you go to pastor school. You get the red phone. Some of I'm joking. Right. That's not true. Right. That's not true. But some people begin to think that, you know, they, they, they pretended that they were closer to God. And, and Paul's like, you're just a bunch of white noise. You're just irritating. It goes on to say, um, if I have prophetic powers, and what that means is like, you're able to explain what God wants people to do. So for instance, you could take the Bible, you could read it, you could understand how that applies to daily life, and you could help someone do that. So let's say you could do that. Then it says, you understand all mysteries and all knowledge. So you understand the universe, you understand how the mountains were created, you understand the way the tides work. You understand the way the ocean uh, works. You understand cats, which is impossible, right? You understand everything, but you don't have love. It says, I am nothing. And what he means by that is everything that you've done without love just zeroes out. Man, it's got no lasting value. It's not going to live beyond the next couple of days, the next couple. Now, on the surface, it looks really good. But in reality, without, without love, it's not going to last. And then that last one, he says, if I give away everything, even give away my body to, to be sacrificed, I gain nothing. Like, no, there is no investment return on my investment. You, you are GameStop is what you are. Everybody seen GameStop? No, you haven't. It's this stock that kind of got inflated for no good reason, no value in the company. Guess what's going to happen? It's going to come back down to its original value. So Paul's saying, man, you, you gain nothing without love. It's not going to last. It has no staying power. Now, let me ask you this question. What's good in your life right now? Man, that, that, that doesn't have love as its motivation. What, what good in your life doesn't have love for others is just this driving motivation. What are the things that you do? Even if, whether it's at work, conversations that you have, um, hobbies that you may take, the way that you handle your neighbors. Like what is good, man, but doesn't really have love as its driving motivation. Now, it's hard to understand motives, isn't it? You know, sometimes we don't understand why we do certain things. Sometimes I'll do things. I'm like, why did I do that? I have no idea. And that, and that can happen with good things and with bad things. And it's always better to do the right thing without good motivation than not to do the right thing or do the wrong thing. But how can we, how can we measure the motivation? 
Like, how can we keep score? Because score is important, isn't it? Like, you got to keep score. That, like today, we, we got to keep score. You know, Patrick Mahomes can pass for more yards than Tom Brady, but if they don't have more what? Points, they lose. This is not upward basketball we're talking about. There's a score. How, how do we keep score? Well, Paul begins to outline it. And what I hope that we can see here in, these, in the way these words are used is sometimes we have this preconceived idea that love is just kind of passive, just kind of sits back, kind of acquiesces to the status quo. Hey, you do you, buddy. No, it's completely not that. And so hopefully today we can see how that's a little different. So he goes on in verse four. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. Doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Man, we just see, man, we see this, this life of love. And he begins to just go through these categories. The first one he talks about is patience. Patience. Now, don't we all know we need more patience? Like, does everybody know this? Have you ever been in traffic and been like, I'm about to shoot somebody right now, right? Or, or maybe you've been waiting in line at the grocery store or maybe someone's supposed to come through with an assignment for you at work and they haven't done it. You're just, your patience is about over. Now, the word for patience means long-suffering. It means slow to get angry. But notice this. It doesn't say forever suffering. It doesn't say never get angry. Even God's patience runs out. Do we know this? Like even God's patience runs out. There comes a point where God's patience isn't helping us. It's actually hurting us. You know, there's this passage in the Bible that talks about this. Like if we're walking in some destructive behavior and God's given us chance after chance after chance, sometimes what it looks like God just does this. Just lets us go. Just lets us walk right down that path because there's no other way we're going to learn than to suffer the consequences of that. Have some of you parents learned this with your kids? Like sometimes you just got to let them burn their fingers. And hopefully it doesn't cause any permanent damage, but they're going to stop touching the fire. Sometimes, especially as your kids get older, you have to let them make some financial mistakes. So, so they'll know and learn what it means to be good money managers. Sometimes you have to let them make some mistakes because that is how they're going to learn. It doesn't mean that we forever put up with people who would mistreat us. It doesn't mean that we forever put up with people who are making bad decisions. Man, love has this ability. Now, now if, we, if we turn it off because of us, we turn it off too soon. If we turn our patience off because we're frustrated, then we turn it off too soon. It's got to be for the good of other people. We see this in the life of Jesus. There's this story when he's in the temple. And when people would come to the temple, they would travel for miles around for this special holiday called the Passover. When they showed up for the Passover, maybe they, they traveled for a long way and maybe they didn't have the right currency to buy the sacrifice. And so they would have to have this currency exchange. And the people who were exchanging the currency would charge exorbitant prices. They would price gouge to people who really didn't have enough money in the first place to even buy sacrifices. And they, so they were holding people back. And Jesus was furious. Jesus gets a cord, ties it up like a whip, and goes in and turns the tables over and yells at them and calls them some names. Now, that doesn't feel like our definition of patience, but it clearly is because this is God. Man, there's a time when, when patience can look like anger at times. So he says, love is patient. Love is kind. 
Love is kind. Now, we all need some kindness in the world today, don't we? We need some more kindness. But, but here, here's what we mistake kindness for. We mistake kindness for being nice, for being friendly. You know when you meet someone out in the lobby and it's just kind of nice? How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you doing? I love your clothes. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I got them on sale. That's what we always say when somebody likes something we buy. And it's like, oh, have you been, have you been exercising? You look like you've lost weight, even though you don't think they look like they lost weight. You just say that. Why? Because you're just, just being nice. Right? And kindness doesn't necessarily mean nice. What kindness means is useful. Kindness means useful. And so let me ask this, like, especially if you're a parent, like, what does it look like to be kind to your children? Now, it looks like using some kind words, but, but imagine this for a minute. Imagine you wanted to be nice and they wanted to have Skittles for breakfast. Like, what's your answer to that? It should be no, just, just saying, especially on Sunday to keep, so that people who are keeping them will be sane when they get out. But but we know that that's not what's best for them. That's not what's useful for them. That's not helping them. So kind doesn't always look like nice. Kind looks like useful. And sometimes kindness has an edge. And sometimes the kindest thing that we can do to love other people is to point out areas of their life where they're getting it wrong. And where they're, where they're walking towards certain sadness or tragedy, where they're making decisions that's going to bankrupt their life. Like the, what kindness looks like is conf- confrontation sometimes. So, so we see this in Jesus' life. You know, he's got some of his closest followers. One of them was this guy named Peter. And Jesus is talking about this thing called the crucifixion. I'm going to have to go die, but I don't want you all to be worried. I remember, you'll remember that I told you it was going to happen beforehand. And Peter's like, Lord, stop talking like that. Man, people are, people are going to leave us. The movement's going to stop. And here's what Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, oh, Peter, it's okay. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Like that feels kind of harsh, doesn't it? But in the moment, he knew what Peter needed to understand, that Peter needed to understand what was best is to have his eyes on the kingdom, that what was best was to have a heart for heaven and eyes for eternity. And so he is kind, useful, points him in the right direction. Love is patient. Love is kind. Then he kind of points out some self-centered qualities that we should never have. He says he doesn't envy, doesn't boast. It's not arrogant, it's not rude, does not insist on its own way. It doesn't insist on its own way. And in that church that Paul's writing to, there was this rivalry. People were like, I'm better because of this, I'm better because of that. You know, I'm the one, you know, look at me, look at me, look at me. And of course, we never do that, do we? Like, we never do this. We never say, I'm better than that person over there. But, but we really do. I'll just point out one. Mask or no Mask. Like, don't we judge people that if you're a mask wearer, you don't wear a mask. You, you hate people. What's your problem? But, but if you don't wear a mask, you're like, you don't believe in freedom. And we, we judge ourselves as better because of mask or no mask. Vaccination or no vaccination. Right? In person or online. And if we're not careful, we do this. Have you ever looked at someone and, and maybe they had on some clothes that you would never be caught dead in and you're like, what are you wearing? You didn't say it out loud, but what happened? You judged them. And you weren't just judging them. You were saying that you, you have better fashion sense than they do. And we have this built into us where we judge people. And we put our interests first. And what Jesus taught us was to walk in humility, didn't he? Walk in humility that you consider other people before you consider yourself. doesn't mean you don't consider yourself. And we, we have to consider ourselves but it just means I will put someone's interests above mine every time that I can. Like there was a, I was reading an article this week about Tom Brady. 
And there was, there was one ex-NFL football player that talked about one of the reasons he is so great. And he said that he's humble. And his definition of humble was that you treat criticism and compliments the same. Well, that's a pretty good definition. When you get criticized, it doesn't wreck your world. You actually use it to grow. You get complimented, it doesn't make you feel like, hey, I'm the greatest, I'm the best, I'm going to always win. You know how to take it. You use it to help you grow. And so what Paul is saying is we have to, we have to always look out for other people. Like the winning score for life is love for other people. Like that's the winning score. That's how we come out ahead. That's how we're sure that we're on God's side. And then Paul goes on and he says this. He says, love, it doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It's not irritable or resentful. Now the word for irritable is a little bit of a difficult word to understand, but it actually just means it doesn't count. It doesn't keep score against someone else. So think about this. How many people are married in the room? You keep score? How many people keep score? Yeah, nobody's going up, right? right? I heard this guy say this one time. He says, you know, when we get in an argument, my wife doesn't get hysterical. She gets historical. <laughs> she keeps score. And we keep score of wrongs. Man, we keep score of the time someone didn't do the thing they should have done. And they did the thing they shouldn't have done. And we keep score. How many times have you ever said, I told you so? You know why you said that? It's because you're keeping score. Like one of the things that my wife and I did, and I, I hope this is a good parenting tip and maybe it will help, but we, we know that teenagers, me, you, all teenagers do dumb things. Come on, somebody. Like you can say amen to that. Like we, we all do some dumb things. We all do some things that we regret and wish we hadn't done. So I did those and my kids did those, okay? So, so we made this agreement that when our kids are older, when they're adults, we're never gonna bring up I told you so we're never going to say, you remember that time? Remember that time you got arrested, right? Now, they didn't get arrested um, that I know of, right? But, but, but we're not going to bring it up. We're not going to be at the rehearsal dinner giving a toast saying, yeah, when she was 16, right? Why? Because they don't want to hear that from their parents. We want to celebrate what's good. We don't want to always say, I told you so. We don't want to keep a record of wrong. Why is that? Because Jesus did that for us, somebody. Like Jesus says, when we have forgiveness in Christ, when we have this kind of love that's rooted and grounded and growing in our hearts, he remove, removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. Like that's some good news right there, that God doesn't remember our sins. He doesn't count them against us. He doesn't say, I told you so. You know what he says? I love you. That's what he says. And so we need to know, we can't do that with people. We can't keep a record of wrong. Now, it doesn't mean that we continue to subject ourselves to someone who wants to abuse us or mistreat us. That's not what that means. But what it means is I'm counting on God to take justice. Because let me tell you something. If you hurt one of my kids, what my love is going to look like is me starting a prison ministry, okay? And I don't think that's necessarily bad. I do, actually. But um, it felt good to say in the moment. But... Listen, we, we got to understand what the, keeps. And then he says this, doesn't rejoice in evil. Doesn't rejoice in evil. Like when we see evil, we don't, we, we don't say, yeah, that's the, way, that's the way life is. We don't gossip about other people. And it says we rejoice. With, it rejoices with the truth. It rejoices with the truth. Now, we know that Jesus obviously is the truth, but it rejoices 
with the truth. How many times have you seen people use truth as a weapon to hurt people rather than as a medicine to help people? You know, Jesus said this. He says, like, I didn't come to call uh, people who were sick or who need a doctor, not those who were healthy. I came for the sick. And what we can do is we can use truth kind of as this battering ram to point out where people are bad, to point out where people don't measure up, to point out where people don't do the things we think they should do. When Jesus never did that. We rejoice in the truth. You know why? Because we love people. And we know that the truth is the best way to live. We know that living in the truth by following Jesus, we know that that's the path of life that we should walk in because Jesus is best. He is the greatest. And this is what love looks like. So Paul kind of packs us, uh, unpacks for us that true love, when we love people, man, it considers other people better than ourselves. Let me ask this question. Where do you always need to be right? Like, where do you always need to kind of defend your position? Where do you always need to say, yeah, I know what I did, but remember what you did? Like, where is it you need to be right? Like, is it at work? You always feel like you need to be right. You always feel like you need to have the right answer. You always feel like you have to defend your spot. Maybe it's in, maybe you're dating and you're still trying to navigate what that looks like and should we get married or should we not get married? You're like, I've got to always show that I'm right and you're not really trusting enough to not be right. Maybe it's in your marriage. I mean, the need to, to be right, you know where that ends up, like divorce court. And we'll talk a little bit about that next week. But where is it that you feel this need to be right? Where could you let other people go first? Man, we want our language to be love. Then, then Paul goes on. In verse 8, he says this, love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. That's just this ability to communicate what God wants you to do, right? As for tongues, they will cease. There was this thought in the Corinthian church that there was this special language, a special prayer language. And Paul's saying those are going to stop. As for knowledge, it's going to pass away. We know in part. We prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes... The partial will pass away. So what Paul is saying is like, even now, our relationship with God, it's, it's, it's a little partial. It's, we're not there yet. There's going to come a time when it's fulfilled. He goes on to unpack that. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But then I grew up and I gave up childish ways. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And then he, then he kind of caps off the whole chapter with this. Now faith Hope and love abide, these three. But the greatest, let's don't miss this, the greatest of these is love. That's what Paul says. Listen, love never loses because love never quits. Love never loses because love never quits. We all know the value of never quitting. We know that the people who are willing to just stick it out, stay it, stay going, stay engaged, they, they seem to make it through. They seem to win. As we know, quitters never win and winners never what? Quit. Winners never quit. There's this quote by the great theologian Bear Grylls. says this, survival can be summed up in three words. Never give up. That's the heart of it, really. Just keep trying. And, of course, Winston Churchill said, never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never 
give in. It matters great or small, large or petty. Never give in except except to matters of honor and conscience. Never yield. Never yield. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming force of the enemy. He says never quit. And this is what we have with love. Listen, some of you know this, don't you? Some of you know this. You didn't quit, and guess what? You're still married, still fighting. Man, you didn't quit. Your child got better. Listen, you didn't quit, and your finances got back together. Listen, you know the value of what it means to never quit. Love will always be here. Love will be the atmosphere of heaven. This is what we will experience. When Paul says, you know, it's, it's, we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Man, there's so much that's packed into that one little phrase. In the Corinthian culture, they were known for bronze mirrors. Like, we can't even imagine that. Like, some of you ladies have some mirrors in your bathroom. You see every little pore in your face, every wrinkle, every blemish. You know exactly how to take care of it. Like, they were looking in these mirrors that were made of brass. And, and what Paul was saying, you know what, when you look at that, you're looking dimly but eventually there's coming a time when you'll see Jesus face to face like eyeball to eyeball and what's it going to look like what will his eyes communicate and what will that gaze look like love it's what it's going to look like I I love at the end it tells the story in Revelation that there's going to come this point where he's going to wipe away every tear from our eye and as you know that's a lot for me and to wipe away someone's tear, you got to get face to face. You got to get close enough to reach up and touch them. Like, this is what we have. This is the picture that we have. Love never quits. Let me ask you this Where does your love quit? What does it take for you just to give up? What conversation do you just stop in? Like, what, what relationship? Have you given up on? Man, who have you quit on? And who needs love, the message of the gospel? Like, where has your love quit? Listen, love is not just this feeble affection that we throw out about food or Valentine's Day or our favorite Netflix show. Love is this earthquake that causes this tsunami of power into our lives. And I just want to paint this picture of how that looked in Jesus' life. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, the Bible says this. It says, God shows his love. God demonstrates his love. He puts it into action that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now, we can't lose the magnitude of what the power of love looked like, how it was demonstrated. So, so it started when, when Jesus came to be with us. The Bible says he came to dwell with us. He was God in the flesh. He moved into the neighborhood is the way one translation says it. Now, now let me ask you this. Some of you, you, you've moved before. Some of you moved in middle school. Remember how bad that was? How painful that was? Middle schoolers can be cruel because they don't know who they are and they're trying to figure it out. And when you move into an unknown environment, people don't know you. People don't care about you. You're just misunderstood. I, I can remember when I was in middle school, a guy moved in and his last name was Shoemake. And as a middle schooler, that's just low-hanging fruit right there. 
But now he ended up being a good friend. But in those moments, it was just difficult. And for Jesus, it was no less difficult to come here. It was no less difficult to grow up with this sense of something going on in his life. It was no less difficult to be rejected by his family, to be, a, to be mistreated by his friends, to be misunderstood. And then, and then he gets arrested. He's betrayed. He's betrayed by his best friends. He's denied by one of his closest followers. Why would he do that? Because of love. That's the kind of love, that's the kind of power love has, to be able to walk and stare death in the face. And then he's delivered over to be executed. Now, I know that's just, the, the crucifixion is the Easter story, and we'll get to that, but let me just give you a little bit of what that felt like. So Jesus is arrested. He's beaten within an inch of his life. It, what we know about that is that his body was so mutilated, you, couldn't even, you wouldn't even recognize him. And then he's hung on a cross, a cross being one of those uh, forms of execution that was the most painful. Like we, we, in our culture, talk about, you know, capital punishment in ways like, how do we not do that? How is it, do we make it more humane? In that culture, they talk about how do we make it as painful as possible? And this is the Roman government we're talking about. This is one of the fiercest military machines in history. And they create crucifixion to be the most painful, to, to be sure that people felt every last ounce of pain that could possibly be felt. And this is what happened to Jesus. Why would he do that? Because of his love. Hey, and let's personalize it for a second. His love for you and for me. And then he's placed in a borrowed tomb. And what happens on the third day? The resurrection, a demonstration of the power of God's love that we all get to experience. And when we begin to live with that kind of love, our lives are different. Man, we'll love people better because we know how much we've been loved. We'll treat people differently because we know the price that was paid for us. Man, we will love people more simply because we know the end of the story and we know how to keep score. Man, I don't know what you think about your capacity to love that way. But when we begin to follow Jesus supernaturally, he helps us to love that way. Like this is the kind of love that Paul is describing here. It's a God kind of love. It's one that's not possible without God in our lives. We wanna be a church whose language is love. We wanna be a people who walks differently, this path of life the best way that we can with love. Let's pray.